Hello, I'm Harriet Mansell, and welcome back to If a Tree Falls. This week, I am joined by Robin Harford, plant forager, ethnobotanical food researcher, author, and wild food educator. Robin established his company, Eat Weeds, and his wild food foraging school in 2008. Since then, BBC Countryfile has listed his foraging course as one of the best foraging courses in the UK. He has released numerous best-selling foraging guidebooks and has an incredibly successful podcast, the Eat Weeds podcast. Robin has a diverse and incredibly well-informed approach to wild foods. His knowledge is extensive and Robin is a fascinating and warm presence to be around. His approach to wild foods and their benefits forms part of a belief that runs through him and comes from his heart. Join us as we explore learning from indigenous knowledge, monocultures, hybridization, sustainability, fully wild diets, and more, this week on If a Tree Falls. So I'm Robin Harford from eatweeds.co.uk and you are... Harriet Mansell from Harriet Mansell and Robin Wilde and Lilac in Lyme Regis. Great. Uh, which are restaurants, yeah? Yeah, Robin Wilde and Lilac are my two restaurants in Lyme Regis and I have travelled all the way across to Exeter, the entire 50 minute drive, <laughs> to come for a walk in a kind of urban setting. Urban... A little bit urban. No, it's urban. Yeah. I mean, Exeter is a very green city. This is one of the routes that I do when I'm kind of wake up in the morning and go thinking time. You know, just, well, kind of let it all go and then things arise in your head. So as you can hear, birds, very lush, very green and food. <laughs> the question is whether or not you'd want to pick this food. There are some kind of dubious elements to picking all of it here, aren't there? But you've probably got some undisturbed patches. You could, I'd pick a few nettles here. Yeah, if you, if you can tolerate going into the, into the forest. The nettle forest down <laughs> into, there. Down there. <laughs> this is where you really do not go in flip-flops. No. <laughs> you head off into the, into the hedge. Cause you're, you're not in an urban setting, are you? You're in, countryside. Yeah I think that is fair to say obviously Lyme Regis and you know is a town and up Lyme where I live is a little village just on the outskirts of Lyme, Lyme Regis but it's quite rural, a little bit agricultural. Well if it's agriculture is that like sprayed agriculture so what's the diversity like? Um, just I mean there's some farms there's a there's a dairy farm you know there's a couple of those nearby okay. and I'm not sure what the crops are but I really have no idea to be honest with you you know I've got my little kind of farm radar on for things that we buy for the restaurant sure so we buy a lot from um, one in Musbury and then there's one in uh, just outside Axman so we use a chill farm chill farm garden and they grow yeah ash is it is that Kate and Ash Kate yeah. and Ash yeah, yeah. is it big now I mean, they've got this massive field that they have really dominated and they've got lots of, lots of people working for them now because, yeah, they increased their supply. I think over the pandemic, they definitely started doing a bit more for the domestic side of things. So they were supplying to more than just restaurants because restaurants weren't exactly... Doing much trade, were they? Doing much trade. So Unless you're a savvy <laughs> chef up in London. Yeah, exactly. Actually, there was, a, there was a guy here, Rob Doyle, who got really savvy and fortunately suddenly figured that people didn't mind takeaways. 
I think if you could hit that take that takeaway thing and, and you you got your right market, there are places and chefs that have have never let that go, and that's probably enabled them to. You know, that's a solid revenue stream, isn't it? If Absolutely. If you're in a city and you can offer that, then you're you're winning. Yeah. There's not much demand for, or there's not enough demand, sorry, where I live for. For that kind of thing. To sustain it. Yeah. All the effort that would go into it. We're quite seasonal. I like that Ash over at Trill and, and Kate have, have come, because I initially, when, when Romy Fraser, who set up Neil's Yard, mm. sold Neil's Yard, she then bought Trill yeah. and set up Trill as an educational establishment and farm and all the usual stuff. You know, I, I was one of the first people to teach there, teaching foraging with people like Fraser Christian and Ipsos Phyto. So one of the other ones was a guy called Ian Burrows, who must have been 20, 2007, 2008. Mm. He was in Norfolk. He wrote this wonderful book, not known about now, but mm. that book is like a really, really good book to get the kind of the more traditional food. So there's lots of esoteric wild plants, mm. aren't there? I mean, there's, you know, because you're in the kind of the high end level of chefy mm. culture in your world from from me being an outsider looking in you know everyone's trying to find that extra little cool thing that very few people are experimenting with and that's great from an artisan an artistic point of view but when i go into europe like i came back from italy from a bruzo and there it's like it seems to be this thing of like <laughs> it just boils greens so ian's book was like the top 50 plants that we would have eaten mm -hmm. so it's interesting for me as an ethnobotanical researcher to see where where you folks are taking <laughs> the, the wild ingredients versus to how peasant culture for want of a better word agrarian culture would have worked with wild ingredients it's completely different how what do you feel about that me saying that yeah i, th I think that you have actually highlighted like you know quite a almost like an opening divide in the two in the two lines of inquiry because that's a good way of describing it <laughs> lines of inquiry i like that when i came to work with wild ingredients like yeah. or maybe like a lot of chefs who have chosen to pursue wild ingredients it was to pursue the flavor yeah and you weren't quite able to satisfy the flavor requirements with what you could find in the supermarket and you knew that there was more out there and i've you know i've heard lots of other chefs say that you know you're on a quest to find that extra something for your palate yeah. that's going to excite the customer and also you yeah so that was why i started out whereas i i suppose people who are fascinated in herbs or the medicinal qualities or just to understand what grows around you and to connect with nature you come maybe initially from a different angle but then meet in the middle that's my understanding i think that over time and i'm very much on the journey now. At one point, I started to try to understand nutritional aspects. You know, that's a very obvious thing to suddenly start to try to understand as a chef. You, you, you incorporate that into your culinary training. What do you mean by that? Well, I think when you're in cookery school, they say, oh, this has vitamin C. Okay, okay. <laughs> this has, this is high in B vitamins. This right. might be good for your digestion. So very- Interesting. Simple, nutritional yeah. things that, I don't know if they taught chefs who were training 50 years ago in that area. I'm sure they must have done a little bit, but I suppose with... I mean, I'm sure they're learning something different in cookery school today. I don't know. Um, but when I went to cookery school, they gave us a little bit of information on, on kind of diet and nutrition yeah. and yeah. it might all work, but nothing too, nothing too extreme. And then 
there was this starting to work with foragers and hearing their insights into why they might use plants in a certain way and what might be good to help a stomach problem or to soothe something or to help a burn or or just basically remedial medicinal yeah aspects of these folk medicines what i call it folk medicine yeah. yeah so i became interested in that but not overly interested sure. because i thought well i want to know but actually i kind of wanted to understand as much as i could from a yeah you know you want to learn stories about plants and things sure. like that and just and that's part see. of the story yeah because yeah. when you're when you're giving people customers food part of their journey and experience is saying well i'm presenting you with a story today yes <laughs> and i'm going to take you from the people who grew it or where i picked it yeah and give you some information and then you will eat it and you will engage more with it if you know more about it yes effectively yes it's an interesting one that about nutrition because i mean i've written books on wild edible plants and one of the the things that positions my book or my primary book edible and medicinal wild plants of britain island away from the other books is that i i've gone quite heavily where possible to find the nutritional value of the wild edible plants but in reality for me as a forager with again having been into traditional cultures indigenous cultures deliberately to learn from them not so much about their particular ingredients but their relationship with the plant foods around them the cultivated and the uncultivated plants and i'm in a place where now it's like again a bit like that tim specter talking about them tim specter set up the zoe project with a few other people and that's the reason we all know about the word the microbiome or gut health everyone's because of his work and he's very clear you know we need to get people eating 30 species of plants so we're talking diversity so with foraging we're talking big diversity because you know as a chef you know suddenly your palette of ingredients has doubled tripled i mean we could go even higher than that if you're really nerding out on the ingredients so when it comes to nutrition my thinking now my way of working with food plants is providing i'm getting that massive diversity i don't need to go down the western i mean specter's reductionist but he's not totally reductionist so the usual western thing is to fragment things break it apart and look for that isolate oh with vitamin c yeah instead of the holistic approach which is whole food has yes vitamin c most likely mm -hmm. along with a load of other things but if you're eating a huge diversity we don't actually need to worry about are we getting enough because we are by default which i always find interesting i mean i listened to a thing with specter the other day talking about dairy i think he was talking about and they weren't talking isolates he was very clear or his colleague is on the show with she was very clear about you know it's not that granular so the science which i'm really into is there's this holistic take it's not too reductionist which has always been the criticism of science that it's is so reductionist that you exclude other things that can be quite helpful does that, any of that make sense yeah well i mean i think that the holistic is the, the emergent side of things isn't it the the opposite of the reductionist yes side. well actually when you're is it like ayurveda it's like eastern medicine yes. it's a bit, a bit like people going well actually we understand that, that taking a holistic viewpoint or, or accepting that things can be more than the sum of their parts which is effectively life itself I yeah <laughs> um, or at least our experience of it 
then that yes pulls you away from the kind of minutiae of going okay well we need to understand what exactly is what exactly is the composition of that leaf and then and then and then kind of maybe taking away from the overall sense of direction that a person needs to go in which is effectively what you said diversity i think that i always uh, i've never worried too much about nutrition in terms of personally sure i've just always had a thirst for well maybe an appetite is more of an appropriate word actually, yeah yeah for, for, for flavor and for a range of foods and i love small quantities of lots of different foods and that makes me happy and that makes or defines my style of food in the restaurant as well that's i find that okay so there's a number of things that are come arising so for the listeners who are hearing this we are riffing aren't we this is completely unstructured and and i'm finding immediately some curious things so before i lose the thinking what you just said about how you like producing small but lots of okay it's instinctive okay so let's hold that idea <laughs> before i lose it and then the other one was you talking about nutrition the folk medicine side of the plants now my friend who lives in vietnam in hanoi and he spends a lot of time in the mountains with the tribal folk and he said a couple of days ago when i saw him he said that one of the things that he was fascinated was that in vietnam when he first arrived every single dish was medicine well, intentionally yes so he was very clear that the vietnamese their influences historically and culinary wise have come from china whereas places like thailand etc are india based mm -hmm. all right now you could say well there's a so india's ayurveda mm -hmm. the potentially the oldest herbal medicine tradition in the world i'm sure the chinese are going to knock against that this, <laughs> me saying that so then you have the chinese but in yep. the chinese one there's the old thing of like you know the doctor would get fined if the patient got ill so that's fed into the culinary tradition of vietnam now i don't know whether that's a general one or he's talking just his specific region or he's talking just the tribal i mean we were just riffing in a cafe so i didn't go that granular but i found that fascinating and how that feeds into you having an interest in the folk medicine of food because that's what they do in vietnam every single dish i mean he said we i was sitting down and and they were pointing out each dish i was told well that's for the lungs to help you breathe clearly that's to warm you up in winter you know these medicine basically mm -hmm. food as medicine i mean forget hippocrates he was behind the times when he said let food be your medicine and medicine be your food you know the asians and the indians were like <laughs> way ahead yep. by five thousand you know like i mean i've ate us five thousand years chinese medicine three and a half they must probably say ten thousand mm -hmm. but i think it's interesting because again it highlights primarily when i wanted to cook for people what i've always enjoyed is this idea of giving someone a complete they've had a meal they've tasted lots of things so they're excited their palate's been taken on a little journey of, of what's available at the, at the time of year and the place that they're in and on top of that the food isn't designed to make them feel bad in fact it's the opposite the food is designed to hopefully make them feel like they haven't had too much of a heavy meal uplift them uplift them and you know my knowledge of food you know has run in a complimentary way to me trying to learn about how food makes me feel like you know engaged in more holistic practices over the years myself sure you know, yoga teacher and yeah all of that 
jazz. Yeah, yeah. So you, you start to understand how, how food works on your specific body type. You can't design food for every person's body type. Them. That's a crazy idea. Yeah. But when you align with that thought process and you think, well, actually, I want to make food that makes people feel really interested and engaged. I also want it to be arguably delicious or at least my version of what I think delicious is to them at this point of the year. And I want them to not walk away feeling like sluggish yeah. or unwell. I want them to have had food that is uplifting. So there's lots of fermentation. There's lots of creating all of those um, those things that contribute to our microbiome. Sure. And um, and it's very fresh. Yeah. Fundamentally, there's a lot of raw or uncooked ingredients. Okay, interesting. But there are a lot of cooked ingredients as well. Yeah, but, and yeah. I'm know. fascinated by this. When I look at other cultures, salad isn't really that big. Yes, yeah, salad. I serve a lot. Is of Is this salad, a modern actually. thing? Because if you go to the medieval record, you know, they talk about salads, but they're often warm salads. They were cooked salads. But our heads are like, oh, no, it's raw. I think that a cooked salad in, in, in older times would have been people understood fire as, as being more sanitary or cooking, didn't exactly, they? Exactly, yes. Whereas we've, we've gained a bit of confidence in, in, yeah. in our times. And then you've got the, the, the modern health movements as well, which probably influence people, like the raw thing. And yeah. The, maybe the, I don't know. Actually, I don't know what paleo tells people to do. Paleo is a complete fantasy because yeah. if you, you know, if, if you really are doing paleo, then the food you would find in, say, Iceland compared to Southern Africa during paleo times would be completely different foods. So this generic, oh, one size fits all paleo diet. Everyone needs their own indigenous diet. Well, they do need their own indigenous. <laughs> and I suppose when I'm immediately thinking of like that cooked thing of the past and like you say, it's a hygiene thing. It was part of the health practice because pathogens, you know, people, people ask me in the city, oh, what do you do about when you want salad? It's like, you know what, I live in a city now, I cook. I don't eat raw salads. Very, very occasionally I will. And if I go to Asia, mm. where you get those beautiful bowls of like soups mm. full of stuff, you do get the fresh herbs mm. and they are medicinal herbs, mm. that, but they're, they're just uh, on the top mm. that you warm within the, the soups. So Yeah, I, th I think, I'm trying to think of whether we forage things and use them in a salady capacity, because obviously we use a lot of the cultivated salads from Ash and Cake. Sure. Uh, and the herbs, obviously. Um, I think something like Herb Robert might really? sneak its way onto really? the top of something. <laughs> I had a German girlfriend and she said that in, in her culture, they use Herb Robert as a little sprinkling on salad because it's yeah. quite bitter, it's, but it's medicinal. It's quite bitter, but with, with, all, with, with a small quantity of it. The fragrance, I think, is amazing because it's all... Um, it's like coriander to me. Curry-ish, yeah. Curry yeah. <laughs> linked perception yeah. there and other really. people think it's like dog pee yeah 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 so. <laughs> yeah my chef danny she's like Ugh. And I think, no it's got such an agreeable fragrance yeah which i learned from your book the word for uh, with agreeable fra fragrance was i think it was gm abanum yes. yes and i was thinking i was reading the uh, uh -huh. oh the from gina i don't know all of those yeah. things yeah so yeah, I find yeah. That really interesting yeah the kind of the what etymology, etymology is it um yeah and just word transmutation yeah I don't know the word for that but yeah I found that fascinating but yeah I find it has a very agreeable fragrance but the flavor doesn't come through and yeah it's a bitter leafy thing and actually sometimes you want bitter 
I say sometimes, we work primarily with bitterness as a flavour profile. Bitter is good. <laughs> Bitter is really good. It's my, good. my, it's the problem with the Western classic diet. Over 50 years, I would say, we've hybridised out the bitterness and made them more sweet. So chicory, when I was growing up, was really harsh. Chicory now is mild. It's not a bitter, bitter plant. No, it's not. It's very mild. It's almost got a sweetness to it. Yeah, now. it has. If, especially if you get the very, like, beyondy, you know, the, the green. Yeah. Figure, I don't know. Yeah, the English green, yeah. normal round yeah, yeah. chicory. It's very sweet. Yeah. I mean, Ash and Kate are obsessed with chicory. They do chicory week every year and they're always... Really? Yeah, they love the bitter. You know, they love... Great. Excellent. Most of their cultivated salad leaves are extraordinarily bitter or mustardy you know Brilliant. they survive well through ah, the winter yeah, months of as well these things like the purple frills have got such an intense okay i don't know this heat. one purple oh, it's just, frills it's beautiful actually okay it's like serves as a garnish but only if the dish needs yeah yeah because it's punchy it's is punchy, it yeah. brilliant but i find i mean that's what i found with with foraging and the wild ingredients when i first came into them was that i talk about i, I to me nature's a metaphor okay so as much as we're talking food mm. you're getting a life lesson from it so that's the name of my podcast if a tree falls in the forest and no one was around to hear it did it make a sound <laughs> and going into the forest to get food and then coming out with some information about yourself or life or something greater well yeah metaphors this is just nature and i'm like little words 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 <laughs> <laughs> sorry you carry on now, what, I, what i was saying was that i'm at a point in my journey mm. plant journey where i no longer want to be defined as a forager Right. Foraging is something I do as a human. Mm. It is not what defines me. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so having lived as a forager for 15 years, what am I defining myself as? I'm not sure, but what I'm seeing is, is that I no longer, when I lived in the countryside, I was quite prejudiced against lawns and urban, urban space and cultivated mm -hmm. neatness, yeah? Mm -hmm. Now I've lived in the city since 2014, so nearly 10 years, I've, I've shifted my, my take and so I don't, I no longer want to separate and this is what I'm, I like about European culinary traditions and I mean agrarian, peasant culture, yeah, peasant in a good way. I love peasant culture. Peasant culture, I, I refer to it as noble peasant culture because peasant has a derogatory term and I don't mean it in that in no. any way, I mean it in a, in a particular context of how we lived with the land in the past mm. if you weren't a king basically or a queen. And so we have this interplay between cultivated and uncultivated. And I'm in a place where I don't want to exclude one or the other. It's not a, a, an either or, it's a both and. Mm -hmm. But there's some interesting lessons that we learn with cultivated plants, traditional cultivated plants, excluding things like permaculture, means that we, we do monoculture. We get rid of all the plants that that specific plant we're growing might compete against. Mm -hmm which gives us gentler flavors because it hasn't had to struggle, mm -hmm. right? So this is really, I think this bit's fascinating if we're talking medicine mm -hmm. food, yeah? So if it hasn't had struggle, there's not much medicine in it. There, 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 there is nutrition in it, but not as much as say an uncultivated plant, wild edible plant, that's had to struggle. I mean, look at all this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these plants are having to really struggle. Mm -hmm. So their flavors, and if they're medicine, is gonna be considerably stronger than if you were just growing that hogweed mm -hmm. monoculture-wise, yeah? So there's this, again, this thing of like, if we go to Vietnam, you know, where, the, where all those dishes were medicine foods, mm -hmm. A lot of that includes wild, 
as well as cultivated. And in Europe, whenever I've been recently, there's this interface of like, it's not, oh, we just forage. It's like, no, we've got a little garden where we're growing our vegetables and making our pasta. And oh, by the way, up the hedge as I walk into village to go to, to the to post a letter, I'm picking up wild plants as well. So there's no separation. It's not about separating. It feels for me with the foraging community, that there's this kind of drive to be, you know, 100% mm -hmm. wild. And I, I mean, it's great as a scientific experiment, but completely impractical for everybody else who lives and on planet Earth. Not, not an appropriate message in the times we live in, actually. I don't think so, no. I mean, it's certainly interesting from, from lots of different angles. Totally. So yeah. this, this is an incorporation, of a reintroducing of our traditional foods. Mm -hmm that we've kind of forgotten and often those foods were were wild plants mm. which interestingly in some of the monastic gardens like alexander's was grown yes yeah, yeah. but it's a feral it was a it was feral it was grown and it's gone back to feral yeah. but now we could grow it and and uh, but again i suppose that's why i like things like permaculture and forest gardening because we're maintaining the food medicine mm coordinates of a plant yeah yeah which monoculture does do we, don't get me wrong i you know we couldn't feed anybody if yeah. we didn't have monoculture so there's so much to there's so much to know and to learn and to share that when you open up these conversations or uh, the kind of lines of inquiry that perhaps yourself as a non-labeled forager or <laughs> plant person plant person plant worker, yeah. myself as you know in inverted commas don't know what i am um high-end chef well but this lesson i'm going to come back to that okay but you suddenly experience it's it's a lens through which you're viewing the world effectively and to kind of share that lens or at least say hey like get an idea of looking at the world through this lens you you don't say to a person, oh, you need to go and survive with these things for this amount of time. You have to go and forage this or blah, 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 or adopt these practices. Uh, but what you are saying is take a little look around and, 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 and place a value on nature and place a value on the, on the world that we live in. So I've come to think a few times about what, what's the sustain, you know, people say to you, what is sustainable? How do you work in a sustainable way? In yeah. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I have to say, I've held back. I haven't, ex I haven't exerted an opinion in the past actually about it. I've said I place It's a, a fluffy word. It's very tricky and it's, there's, oh. Yeah. I place a value on appreciating the world around me. Yeah. Yeah. and of doing my best to understand and engage with and learn but also trying to be respectful in the way that we're going about things but then oh god you could go in so many different directions there's, there's things that we've spoken about before i mean we're to bloody buy a hogweed plant you know we spoke about that the other day yeah yeah we? yeah a really nice interesting example of of a plant that you wouldn't overly go and recommend to people to go and start eating willy-nilly no uh, absolutely not dangerous look-alikes and the fact that I mean, you, you, I told my chef straight away what you said to me the other day about the, the seeds when they're green versus yeah. when they're black. Yeah, and hybridisation as well. We have this, we, I do feel do we have... Do you share that thing actually on the, about the eating the seeds, giving people reactions? Okay, so shall I just say what I told you, the yeah. story of hogweed? So yeah. loads of chefs are serving up hogweed shoots, Heraclium's fondilium. You know, early spring, it's the shoot that everyone goes for. Now, I've eaten it for nearly 20 years, so theoretically I, I should by now know whether or not my body has a reaction to this plant. 
However, over the years of teaching, and I've been teaching full-time since 2008, which is when I set up my wild food school, I started getting reports of people when they started eating hogweed having reactions. Now, some of them were really mild, shortness of breath, slight tingling in the mouth, yeah. Some of them were really serious, like borderline anaphylactic shock, which is not funny. And, you know, you and I have talked about, we serve the public and therefore we've got to be really, we have a duty of care to our clients, yes? So I pulled hogweed off my teaching curriculum. I didn't teach it for two years. I wanted to know what was going on. And so far I've had seven or eight, actually more now, nearly 10 reports of people having reactions enough that my I'm concerned red flag goes up. So I pull it off and I start telling my other colleagues about the reactions. And to be fair, I'm almost overly cautious when I serve wild plants to people. And I've been accused of being too cautious, but that's just my way. I think if you've nearly died, not necessarily from eating things, but if you face your own death, then being cautious about <laughs> keeping the rest of your life going is most probably quite sensible. Some people are more gung-ho, I'm not. So I pulled it off and one year, and I've got this recipe for spiced hogweed seed biscuits, which wasn't made by me, it was made by a friend called Marion, but it's on my site. And it's still on my site, but it's on my site with warnings. Now what we did was we would get the, the hogweed seeds, which smell very orangey, cardamom immediately comes to mind for me, and is used as a cardamom analogue, like a mimic, as a spice, the hidden spice chest of the hedgerow. And I'm on the Isle of Wight and I'm being put up by this lovely family and Thrupp is the person who's put me up and she's eaten hogweed seed and hogweed for years. And what that year, which must be about 2012, I think, maybe 2011, we gather the green hogweed seeds, which we've done for years, yeah, take them back to her house, dry them in her agar and make the spiced hogweed seed biscuits. She eats half of one of the biscuits and her throat starts closing. And I'm in closing to a point where I'm actually really concerned. And it's like, this is so now totally off limits yeah. until I get some handle on what's going on. Because the point is, Thrupp had eaten hogweed for many years. It wasn't like she was new to it and it suddenly came on. So there is this concept that I've played with called bioaccumulation. Just as soil accumulates toxins, plants can accumulate toxins. Now I'm not saying it's accumulated toxins, but there is something going on. So my friend Mo Wild up in Scotland, who's just done this year long wild food experiment and wrote a book called The Wilderness Cure. She, she's a herbal researcher, so she's a lot more sciencey than I am. And she goes straight into hogweed and analyzes it and comes up with a number of hypotheses as to why people may be having these reactions. One is the biggest allergy in Europe is celery. Well, celery is the Apiaceae family, the carrot family, which is what hogweed is a member of. So what we've had is we've had people, possibly, possibly had people who actually have a very low level celery allergy, eating cultivated celery, no problem because of what we've just talked about with hybridization, grown hybridization, not wild hybridization suddenly eating something that they've got a reaction to. Mm. That could be one reason. The other reason is plants are not static. So because the Poles ate this in the 16th century, they mm. fermented it as a base for borscht soup. You know, 500 years on, 
this plant may well have hybridized with other subspecies. Well, Mo discovered that I think she said there's six or seven subspecies that have come into Britain in the last 20, 30 years. This is going to have hybridized. Yeah? And I, there's, that, there's that whole thing. And again, I just don't, you know, I've, okay, I've read books on the mycelium network and I've read books on what's going on between this, you know, under the soil and what's going yeah. on between the plants and the trees. And yeah. there's stuff going on. For there sure. is. But then I, you know, I, I think to myself, well, my friend Nick, who's a mushroom specialist, mushroom farmer, mushroom forager, yeah. he said to me one day, I was out in the woods with him in um, Offwell, and I saw some chanterelles and, um, I said, hey Nick, look what I found. And he said, yeah, no, you're absolutely right, Harriet. Chanterelles, ahoy. But I wouldn't pick those ones if I were you. If you just look at what they're growing next to, I think it was a rhododendron. Uh, he was like, I actually, they are most likely absorbing toxins. He goes, it's not definite, but I would be worried about the situation of those two things. And he goes, so therefore, whilst that's not going to kill you, it might give you a really upset stomach. Yeah. You definitely wouldn't be um, serving that in your restaurant. I mean, I would never forage mushrooms and put them in my restaurant because I don't believe I'm qualified even sure. though I know a lot sure sure <laughs> but that know your limits moment of going oh wow god there, there's a lot there's a lot to know that's an interesting one because when I was 16 I was having a cigarette illegally is because I was at school and one of the things we did to cover up the smell was to eat wild garlic in spring you must just not delight. Yeah, well, it's not exactly a signal you haven't been having a fag, is there? <laughs> that or mince, just red flag to the teachers that you've been up to no good. But what I found interesting was I picked what I thought was a large wild garlic leaf and happened to be Lords and Ladies. Aromaculatum, which yeah, yeah. is like poisonous. I've had someone ask me if well, laws and leaves of wild garlic before, and I was aghast. <laughs> well, it's a really common one to make a mistake because they grow right in the same place. But I chewed on the le on the stalk, mm. the leaf stalk, tasted a wild garlic. So this uptake of flavours, ah. like your chanterelle near rhododendron, yeah. uptaking toxins potentially from rhododendron. Yeah. There is, I do think, there is something in it. Yeah. I don't know whether we need to be that, I don't know. I, d I mean, I think, yeah, if it's that blatant chanterelle by rhododendron, we'll wait until you find something that's in a bit more yeah. of a known... very cautious. Totally, which I'm completely with. Yeah. Um, personally, on a personal level, I would most probably have eaten them, but mm. certainly serving to the public, no, yeah. that's off. That is where one draws the line. Absolutely. Yeah. So we don't know about hogweeds still, and I'm still quite nervous when I see people serving it in restaurants because I do say that uncultivated plants are not cultivated plants. You're talking chalk and cheese really in, in well already we talked like the nutritional content because it's had to struggle. They're different worlds but they do interface. The one that I, I think I mentioned this to you the other day when we were chatting I've had I've had a couple of reactions recently to woodruff and I obviously know that woodruff contains coumarin and that's highly toxic to people no toxic to some people in really high quantities which i read that it was very unlikely that you could yeah if it's not dried enough. properly it causes a problem doesn't it yeah so i also read and i think i said this to you as well like, apparently you have to dry it quickly in yeah. order to, do, to to prevent the fungal growth that could convert the coumarin into is it it's like dicumarol or something the yeah um my question was, well, like, how quickly? Because <laughs> the guidelines weren't really no, in existence. sure. And so we prepared it in line with our quite speedy drying guidelines. Yeah. And um, infused it into a syrup and into a cream pudding. <laughs> Wasn't feeling great on the old throat. 
scratch. Interesting, isn't it? So it makes it made it made me stop and go, okay. Uh, and and three other people uh, experienced that. So no, that's just one batch of woodruff growing. And from three one other people Un from the same batch. Unprompted experience the same that's thing. fascinating that's fascinating in a good way and fascinating in a slightly uncomfortable way <laughs> yeah. because what does this say as we need to be doing when we introduce wild ingredients to the public it's your world i don't have that problem yeah but i'm aware of it and i you know you're when we had that discussion you know i came off that conversation going smart woman you know you've got your charts your document you're being meticulous you're being scientific yes and that's where your friend felix was telling you you are actually doing science even though not in the conventional yeah, I'm gonna sense show you, um, i'm going to show you my spreadsheet when we get back yeah no that'd be great just to see where we're at and the gaps yeah. that need filling yeah uh, just just to recap for the purpose of the podcast sure i started pulling together some food wild edibles research um, and again, I haven't I haven't knocked on every door yet because well, this part of this process is me figuring out the doors to knock on, I guess. Yeah. And I came to you with a few questions and um, and I said, look, I've actually you know devoured your book. It's a complete and utter handbook for me. And there are other more verifiable sources of information, you know, or places that I would go to find things yeah. out. And there are things that I've learned and acquired over the years from a knowledge perspective, from foragers, from doing it, from education. And they got to a point where I thought, well, actually, all of my chefs are coming to me saying, sometimes asking me questions that I don't know the answers to. I say sometimes, all the time. And I thought, well, I've got a bit of a responsibility here to, um, to pull this information together. So I thought to myself, let's, uh, let's get a log going. It's yes. like a bit of a, it's almost, it's more than an allergen index, but primarily it started out going, oh, what are the handling procedures? What are the allergens? What are the things that we know? What are the things we don't know? Names, yeah. we're assuming that the plant that we have on the sheet has been identified correctly. So that's the <laughs> starting premise. Sure. So that's yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a whole other world of difficulty yeah, that, totally. that we're ignoring. Yeah. Um, we're assuming that we're having the correct plants. Yes. Uh, as a starting point but no it's 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 definitely highlighting the gaps in the knowledge and i think we said the other day it's not about policing people it's about understanding i'm not serving all of these plants in the restaurant but we're working with them because we're interested in flavor yes so uh, we tend to we tend to serve the more typical uh wild plants that people are more familiar with nettle jack by the hedge all the, the wild garlic so three-cornered leek we'll, we'll use those types of things we'll use pine we we use loads but i mean you came to eat a couple of weeks ago in the restaurant you saw that we use a fairly pedestrian set of wild ingredients and i'm really okay so you've got me on my beef at the moment go on you it's not my beef oh, is it a beef no it's not a beef it's me trying to find where my place is now i'm don't want to be seen as just this forager. I like that word you just used, pedestrian. So we've got a plant right here. Okay, so here's a classic thing. We're doing this walk and there's a, there's a retirement complex over there mm -hmm. and in it is a farmer mm -hmm. who obviously just can't handle being inside because he's a proper Devon farmer and he's out and he's basically taken it upon himself mm -hmm. to, to, to manage and sculpt this particular patch of Exeter, right? People walk by this, run by this, cycle by, they don't know who's doing this. This guy is doing this, yeah? Yep. And 
as you can see, this is food and medicine. This is prolific what this guy's done. Now, I, he's called John, and I went and, and, and had a chat with him. He's actually really upset that there's all these beautiful food and medicine plants growing. And I said to him, I said, John, you've got medicine and food here. So this classic one is chicory, but this is bindweed growing next to it <laughs> or growing up it. So it's over because it's, it's in flower. But this is a classic green that we eat, as well as the root, yeah? Mm. So look at the chicories. Oh, no, look at it. It's massive amounts of it. You've got that beautiful malane behind, which again is, is normally a medicine plant. And it, the flowers are like mushroom. If you eat them, they just taste of mushrooms, but they're beautiful. But so that's, again, immediately the flowers, well, you're not gonna feed yourself, but historically, Elizabethan times, we had a massive flower tradition, flower salad tradition, where, you know, you go down to, even, even with um, Ash and Kate, you've got the, the salad bags that they're gonna produce. How many flowers do they put in it? I bet they don't put that many. Nasturtium. Um, marigold. Marigold, bit of borage. Sometimes corn, corn flour. Corn flowers. Chai flowers. Chai. Okay, okay. So they're actually, they're right on the edge. That's way over what flowers. you normally get. Yeah? Yeah, they're, they're a good, but they, they, they do a nice little selection. No, I know. And, and I've chosen them deliberately. <laughs> One, I really like what they're doing, so we're bigging them up. But two, they are, they are extending it, but most people don't. 50, 60 flowers used in flower salads in Elizabethan times. A whole aspect of our culinary heritage we've forgotten. So, malane flowers, is that a pedestrian plant? No, it's not. It's chicory pedestrian. So like no. you say, you use pedestrian, which is what I mean by when I go into Europe and you got the old people gathering the plants from the hedge. Those to me are the pedestrian plants. Mm. They're the defaults that actually, they're not just a little garnish mm. or a canapé. It's solid food, mm. yeah, proper, a primary ingredient. A portion of their kind of daily uh, plate. Yeah, and that's, that's where I'm moving to with my work. Having, having taught high-end chefs like yourself in the past, then going into the global kind of exploring to indigenous cultures and how they relate to their local food. I'm now coming to a place in my own life, age most probably as well, and where I am. And I like the idea of, yeah, let's use all the plants for our nourishment. The diversity. The diversity, mm -hmm. massive diversity. And that, that idea of pedestrian, so we've got the chicory and we've got the mustard. Yeah, we've got the nettles. These are the defaults. Join us again next week on If a Tree Falls as Robin and I continue our discussion on ancestral knowledge, plants and their attributes and using the senses and more. Mm -hmm.